Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our scripture for today is Luke 15, 11 through 32. It is on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, well, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. And then he became angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen. For all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So like Nicole said, we know this story really well. 
We know the story to be about a son who leaves and then returns home to a warm welcome. We know it to be an encouragement to all of us who wander, that we can always come home, that forgiveness and grace abound, and that even if we mess up everything, all is not lost. But what if I told you that we've got this story all wrong? Now, I'm not interested in throwing out centuries of interpretation or arguing with the people who make our modern Bibles and slap headings onto stories such as the parable of the prodigal son. I'm just asking some questions, harmless. So right before this passage, Jesus has just given two similar parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, both found and celebrated. And he's doing this in response to the VRPs, the very religious people, who do not like that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, on one hand, they're upset that Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. But on the other hand, perhaps they're upset because Jesus then is not hanging out with them. So Jesus, never the predictable person, answers their grumbling with some stories, a parable to be exact. And parables are a particular kind of story. They're not moral lessons or fables or extended metaphors, and neither are they myths. They are purposefully ambiguous in order to tease our mind into active thought. Karl Barth, a fixture of Christian thought post-World War II, says of the Bible, it doesn't matter if the snake actually spoke, but it matters what the snake said. And we can think of parables this way. It doesn't matter if the story is true. By virtue of being a parable, it's not. But it does matter what happens in the parable, what's said in the parable, what value system is used in the parable. And often, the value system within the parable is meant to wreck the value systems outside the parable. And because parables are meant to engage our minds a bit, like a puzzle, we go into the story expecting that if the meaning feels immediately clear, then perhaps we do not understand. Because parables are meant to be explored, rolled around in our hand, burned like incense, marinated like barbecue. They're rooms with trapdoors. And you walk around and around a room to find the meaning, and then suddenly you fall through a trap door and everything is upside down. It's like you're Alice in Wonderland. And it's only when we fall through that trap door that we begin to understand what this parable is saying. So the parable begins. There was a man who had two sons. Now two things should set off alarm bells here. First, we typically think about this story as the parable of the prodigal son, in part because of the heading in our Bibles, but also we think of this story as the parable of the prodigal son because the parable spends a lot of time talking about this son. But who does this first line tell us the story is about? Yeah, the man who had two sons, the father. And second, this line, there was a man who had two sons, is a signal to readers with Jewish imagination. It's a way of setting up a story. 
It's like when we hear once upon a time or a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. We know what kind of story we'll follow when we hear those lines. We know the level of truthiness to the story. We know what kinds of things are possible. And we know how it will end. And the same goes with this line. There was a man who had two sons. Because this is not the only story in the Jewish imagination about a man who had two sons. Can you think of other stories in the Bible about two brothers? There's quite a few of them that are essential to both the Jewish and Christian faith. In fact, the first man, Adam, had two sons, Cain and Abel. And if you recall, their story does not end well. One is favored by God, and the other is not, for reasons indiscernible to the readers. So Cain, in his anger about not being favored, murders Abel. And the text tells us that Abel's blood cries out from the ground. And when God asks Cain where his brother is, presumably already knowing the answer because, you know, God, Cain utters the telltale question, am I my brother's keeper? I'd argue the rest of scripture answers that question with a resounding yes. And then there's Abraham. Before Father Abraham had many sons, Father Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. One is favored, one is forsaken by his father, though not by God. And Ishmael, though the firstborn, is abandoned in the desert by Abraham, left to die. And Isaac, through no fault of his own, profits off his brother's abandonment by receiving the firstborn inheritance. Now, Ishmael is rescued by the Lord, and he becomes the father of a nation. But the catalyst for that destiny was being left in the desert to die by his dad. And just like his father, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, a case study in sibling rivalry that we'll revisit at the end of our series. Esau is favored by his father, Jacob is favored by his mother, and Jacob swindles his brother and father and steals Esau's birthright, a blessing that could not be taken back or redistributed once given. So Jacob flees and does not come back until his parents have gone. Many years later, anxious until the very moment that Esau greets him, wondering if he will be killed for the havoc that he has wrought so far in the past. So when the listeners hear, there was a man who had two sons, they might hold their breath a little, wondering what frightening family dysfunction would play out, what tragedy would mar this family's mythology, and which character would break their heart. So Jesus continues the story. The youngest, for an undisclosed reason, goes to his father and asks for his inheritance, the portion of wealth that would be given to him at his father's death. He wants it all up front. And remarkably, the father gives it to him. So then the son sets off for a distant country, a Gentile country, and when his fast and loose lifestyle compounds with an economic downturn, he finds himself eating with pigs, a violation of his Jewish faith. And he's miserable and hungry, and the text says he comes to himself. And we're not quite sure what this means. But after he comes to himself, he returns home, hopeful to work 
as a slave so that he will have food and shelter at least. And as he approaches, his father sees him and goes out to him and embraces him and gives him a ring and a robe and sets party plans in motion, a very fancy and lavish party. The word prodigal actually means wastefully extravagant, not wayward. So in a way, this is a parable of the prodigal father. And the father welcomes his lost son back, saying, this son of mine was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. So the party ensues, a real Gatsby-like celebration. And the elder brother finally enters the scene. And he's ticked off and pouting outside. So the father goes out to him. And the son explains, explains that he's mad because he's been working hard, slaving away his words. And he's never had a party thrown for him. He's never even been given a goat to celebrate with his friends. And the father says, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. But you are not just a son. You are a brother. And your brother is back from the dead. He is alive again. He was lost and has been found. Now, of course, I imagine this party was not the only thing done in response to the son's return. I bet a lot of hard conversations happened afterward. Where were you? What happened? How could you? How do we be a family again? How do we make amends? How do we move forward? Where's mother? What happened to her? I missed so much. How can I make up for all this time? How do I live now that my share has been spent? Will you be my keeper again, brother? Now that the wine has worn off and we are in the light of day, can we ever heal from this fracture? This is indeed a redemption for the younger son and for the family. But more than that, it's a redemption story of the man who had two sons. This every man, this trope throughout scripture. The lost father who kept losing his sons has finally been found in this parable. Did you feel the fall through the trap door? The man who had two sons in this story departed from the other men who had two sons. This man was committed to making a home even after everything. So much had changed, so much had been lost, so much to be grieved, yet the father kept his covenant of keeping a home that one could return to, whether his son had been gone for years or had just stepped outside. He was committed to gathering his family together, not in spite of everything, but because of everything. His commitment to generosity, wasteful extravagance, is the locus of his value system. And unlike his predecessors, he was not motivated by power or following tradition or inheritance or religious custom or his comfort level with tricky dynamics or hiding away of his own sin, but rather his motivation was the prioritization of those in his care, of the ones who needed to be called son, daughter, beloved child. 
the ones who needed to be reminded that they are brother, sister, sibling. And because this father was found, because the role in this family was finally redeemed, the sons were found too, each in their own way. Howard Thurman, an early 20th century black theologian said, when the prodigal son came to himself, he came to his father. Thus to be a Christian, a person would not be required to stretch themselves out of shape to conform to the demand of their religious faith, but rather their faith should make it possible for them to come to themselves whole in an inclusive and integrated way. For the son to come home, there had to be a home that would receive him. It's almost as if Jesus is trying to say to the very religious people, the VRPs, that you can be found too. Maybe when you find yourself, others can come home too. And the father says twice in the story, this son of mine, this brother of yours, was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. And based on the literary principle of end stress, we might expect the father to end this proclamation with death and life. After all, what's better than being alive? And what's worse than death? But in this story, the end stress is on the one who was lost being found. So that belonging is the value system. Contrary to the line of thinking that states the Bible has some prescribed ideal nuclear family model, there's actually not that many examples of good families in scripture. A lot of the fathers are just really bad dads or terrible husbands and just generally gross people. But in this story, we get the best dad, the parent we all hope for, the one we all hope to be. As we think about returning over the next few weeks, I wonder what it would mean for us to be a place to return to. How can we be a community that is committed to gathering together, not in spite of everything, but because of everything? How do we relinquish our value systems of power and control, of tradition and inheritance, of religious custom and comfort level, of even hiding away of our own sin? Because these value systems that are given to us in all the ways we participate in the liturgy of the world will be our driving motivators if we are not attentive to them, if we do not regularly recalibrate and reorient ourselves through worship, through sharing our resources, through remembering our baptism, through coming to the table. How do we instead prioritize the ones we are called to care for? The ones Jesus prioritizes, because he does play favorites sometimes. And how can we practice the holy and sacred work of calling those who come here brother, sister, sibling, son, daughter, beloved child, will we find ourselves again?
Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.